you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. This is the gospel. This is the clearest understanding of our salvation, I believe, in all of Scripture. This is why we are here. This is one of the most beloved passages in your Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, Lord, I pray that you are with the church right now. Lord God, I pray that you give us clarity in thinking, Lord. I pray that you give us compassionate hearts, Lord. That we are a light of truth, God, to this world. That we not only teach truth, that we not only proclaim truth boldly, but we live in that truth, Lord. That we look different than the world. pray if persecution comes. I pray it comes because we are living righteously. God, be with us, Lord. Be with the local body here at Country Oaks. God, help us to be founded on your word. In your son's name, amen. We live in a fallen world seeing the effects of this fallenness everywhere. I think we especially have been seeing it the last few weeks. We've seen an ugly murder, an abuse of power by a police officer in Minnesota. We've seen ugly riots and looting, anarchy in the streets in our major cities. We're seeing a deeply divided nation that is only being more and more divided racial tensions, unrest in America, attack on police officers, and all of this should break our hearts. It should break our hearts. Yet, in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised. The Bible tells us we live in a fallen world. Prince of this world is Satan. He is a liar and he is a murderer from the beginning. This world is under his power. In fact, look at the passage we just went over. Ephesians 2, verse 1 says this 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Unsaved man walks in depravity, in the sphere of trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, dead to God. He follows two things, following the course of this world. The course of this world should be understood as world or world system or world standards. The system of practices and standards associated with a secular society that is without reference to God. The course of this world, our culture, Western civilization, is both secular, rejecting God, and postmodern, rejecting truth. following the prince of the power of the air. The prince here is Satan. The world system, in other words, is under Satan's domain. He is the world's prince. Power of the air is the genitive of place. It's, in other words, saying that Satan just consumes the air. He's not all my present, but the air is consumed with his ideas. And we're seeing it. the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The ESV says following the prince of power of the air, the spirit, which makes it seem like the, the, the devil is the spirit being talked here, but I don't think that pans out well in the Greek. The NASB, I think, has it better. According to the prince of power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit. In other words, the, the, the prince, Satan, is over this spirit. What's the spirit? It's the spirit of this age. It's a spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's a disobedient spirit that fills this earth. It's a rebellious spirit. It's a blame-shifting spirit, and it's the spirit of our age, and it's at work in the sons of disobedience. And we're seeing it. We live in a fallen world, and we're seeing the effects but we also are seeing the effects of living in a postmodern world. Postmodern is a ism is a philosophy, or it's more of a belief, and it's becoming a religion that claims there is no objective truth. There's no overarching truth that is true for all of us. Instead, truth is relative to the individual or community. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth really left with nothing more than personal opinion or personal experience. It's been taught for years through media, movies, schools, higher education. And we're seeing the results. We live in a culture that says truth doesn't matter. And since truth doesn't matter, it's not valued. It's not sought after. Instead, everything is seen through the lens of narrative or story. And you can mold that narrative into anything you want. Anything that promotes your opinion, your cause, your agenda, your wants. And you can demonize anyone that opposes you. You see this everywhere. Social media, the news. I believe these things are equivalent to Job's three friends trying to interpret reality without God's revelation, without 
the scriptures. The difference is Job's three friends at least believed in the value of truth. They were just mistaken. Our culture has given up on truth. Truth doesn't matter anymore. Man doesn't look for truth. Man doesn't care about truth. Man doesn't seek truth. He's guided only by his feelings, perspectives, and personal opinions. News has become purely opinion, not news or truth reporting. And this is on both sides of the cultural divide. Please don't be fooled, both liberals and conservatives. Again, it shouldn't surprise us. This world is under the power of the evil one, and the devil is a liar. He hates truth. In fact, this is what Jesus said in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. He's talking to Pharisees. But I, I truly believe he's talking about the world. And your will, the world, is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father and that's what a postmodern society has to offer. A postmodern secular society has to offer lies, chaos, anarchy. Thankfully, we have the truth. We have the word of God. And I believe it's by God's providence being sovereignly involved in our church that we are in the book of In this cultural moment, we have been studying Ephesians. I don't think there's any better book right now to be in. So I have two goals today and next week and possibly the week after that. I want to review the book of Ephesians. It's been a while since we've been in the book, just trying to keep up with everything that's going on. But in reviewing, I want to address the national conversation that's going on concerning race and racism. Today I want to start by looking at two overview topics, two uh, topics to introduce the book of Ephesians. We've gone over both of these. The two topics are, the, are these. The histor- historical background of Ephesians, the historical context this letter was written in, and the outline of the book of Ephesians. So let's start with the historical background real quickly. You need to know this to understand Ephesians, the letter. There was hostility in this time, the letter was written, the book of Ephesians, between Jews and Gentiles, in particular Greeks. And it would be very unlikely to see these two groups unified, being one. The Gentiles hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Gentiles. And this is a a long historical hatred. You can go through the whole Old Testament and it's wars between Gentile nations and Israel. Time of Moses, Egypt, Gentiles enslaved the Israelites. In the time of David, Philistines, Gentiles were at war with Israel. In the 7th century, we just got done talking about Assyria. Gentiles destroyed the northern kingdom and threatened the southern kingdom. In the 6th century B.C., We see Babylon, a Gentile nation, destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel. 
the intertestimonial period, the time between the Old Testament and New Testament, years of silence in Scripture, the Greeks ruled Israel. In fact, a Greek ruler sacrificed a pig in the Jewish temple to Zeus just to tick off the Jews. Throughout the history of Israel, there's been war, abuse, oppression, massacre done in by the hands of Gentile nations, even in 70 AD, that's less than 10 years after this letter was written. Rome, Gentiles, completely destroyed the temple, completely destroyed Jerusalem, massacred men, women, and children, crucified hundreds of Jewish men. Gentiles hated the Jews, but the Jews hated the Gentiles too. In fact, listen to Acts 11.1, 1. it says this, now the the apostles and the brothers. These are Jewish Christians. These are the apostles who were throughout Judea heard that Gentiles also had received the word of God. In other words, Gentiles, Greeks were being saved and they heard about this. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that's the, the, the apostles and Jewish Christians criticized him. They criticized Peter and said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. See how deep the hatred was? They ignored the fact that these men were being saved. And they criticized Peter for eating with them. Jews weren't even allowed to eat in a Gentile's house because they were pagan worshippers. They were idolaters. They were unclean. They were hopeless. Jews hated the Gentiles. They had disdain. They thought they were morally inferior to the Jews. They were unclean. And the Gentiles hated the Jews. This is the historical context of Ephesians. And really, this is the historical context of much of the New Testament. We're going to come back to this. I want to talk about a second overview topic, and that's the outline. And I know what you're thinking when I said this earlier. We've gone over this over and over and over again, the outline of Ephesians. Listen, the reason that is, it's because it's super, super, super important. And I hope you see why today. The body of Ephesians is divided up into two sections. You have the doctoral and the theological sections, chapter 1 through 3. What has happened? Foundational truth. And then you have the ethical or practical sections, chapter 4 through 6 how we should live. Chapters 1 through 3 are statements of facts, foundational truths, propositional truths, ontological truths, nature of ultimate reality truths, overarching truths, or what Francis Schaeffer likes to say, true truths. Not the type of truths that can be binned into your narrative in today's culture, but true truths. Chapters 4 through 6 is how then we should live in light of these truths. The deep truths, these true truths found in chapters 1 through 3 are meant to be foundational to how we live in chapters 4 through 6. This is important because God doesn't give arbitrary laws. His commands are always grounded in ontological truths. They're grounded in ultimate realities, unchanging realities. Let me give you an example of this. 
if you read through Leviticus, you'll see a phrase over and over and over again, and it's this, be holy because I am holy. The command is be holy. The command in Scripture. The truth is, I am holy. The command, in other words, to be holy is anchored in truth. In fact, if you study the laws found in Leviticus, at first you might be reading through them and go, hey, these laws seem arbitrary. But they're not. They're grounded in the fact that God is holy. And if you study the laws, you'll learn a lot about God and his holiness. Let me give you another example. This is outside of the Bible. Right? Because commands should be based off ultimate truth, or should be based off truth in general. As a parent, I've told my children many times, don't touch the stove, especially our wood-burning stove, which gets extremely hot, and it's touchable for them. Why? Well, there's an ontological reason behind it. There's a reality behind that command, a hot stove. Let me put it into a sentence that might help you connect what's going on in Ephesians. The stove is hot, therefore, don't touch it. The reality is a hot stove, the command is don't touch it. Listen, Ephesians is broken up into two sections. Reality, chapters 1 through 3, it's like the hot stove. And the command, chapters 4 through 6, now don't touch it. In fact... I've said this, and and we should know this. There's 40 imperatives. There's 40 commands in Ephesians. 39 of the commands are found in chapters 4 through 6. In chapters 1 through 3, they're all indicatives, statements of fact, telling us information. There's one command, and that's remember all these indicatives. (laughs) Chapters 1 through 3, Paul gives us the theology, foundational truths, true truths. Chapters 4 through 6, Paul gives us the commands, how we should live. There's one word that separates these two sections. Therefore. You know, it's such an important word in Scripture. And I used to just think it, it, it was important because it told you to look. Therefore, look, see why it's there. See what, what's before it. But as I've studied scripture more and more, I realize that word therefore is used so much to go from truth to command. Ultimate reality, truth, therefore, live this way. In fact, look at Ephesians 4, verse 1. Turn with me. says this, I therefore, there's that word, therefore, because, in other words, of this theology, this doctrine, because of these deep truths, these true truths in chapters 1 through 3, therefore, live this way, therefore, walk in this way. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And what's the first thing he says? What's the first command he gives us? Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. The church should walk in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And listen, our unity is being tested. There's threats 
on many levels right now that are attacking the church at large, it's unity. The church should seek unity. Now listen, remember the historical context of Ephesians. Jews and Gentiles, in particular Greeks, two cultures, two races, historically that, that hated each other, a long history of conflict and hatred. And Paul gives us this command, be unified. In fact, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Why? Because of all the truth just stated in chapters 1 through 3. Why do I labor this point so much? Here's why. Secular society doesn't have a therefore. It doesn't have a therefore. Postmodern society doesn't even believe in objective truth. There's no overarching truth. Therefore, you're only left with opinion and feelings. Yet, this is the same secular society that is adamantly saying, and I agree with this, this statement, racism is evil. But why? If there is no God, meaning there is no image of God, if there is no ultimate truth, it's just your opinion versus my opinion, who says racism is wrong? Secular society has no foundational truth to say why racism is wrong. Secular society's morality is arbitrary. You need to understand this. It's arbitrary, and it's changing. It's not grounded in truth that's unchanging. It's arbitrary, and it's changing. Right now, secular society says you shouldn't hate. Well, why? Because you shouldn't hate. Well, why? Because you shouldn't hate. It only has the command. There's no ultimate reality to anchor it in arbitrary. Let me give you an example of this. Our culture says you should suppress and control your feelings of hate and anger, but you should embrace and indulge in your feelings of sexuality. Why? There's no ultimate truth to say one over the other. Why is acting out in hate and anger wrong, but acting out in sexuality is okay? It's arbitrary. And you might be thinking, well, hate and anger hurts people. Well, let me give you another example. We've heard the phrase over and over again, and I agree 100% with this phrase. Black lives matter. That concept is 100% true. But it's stated as a moral command. You shouldn't treat African Americans like they don't matter. Well, what if I responded saying, yes, I 100% agree with you. 100%. And pointed out the hundreds of African American babies that are killed daily, ripped limb from limb from their mother's womb. Abortion clinics, which purposely target African American communities. Most in secular society would call me a racist, or at least avoiding the real issue, or more likely I'd be called a sexist that's also a racist that's also a bigot. Secular society's morals are arbitrary. 
ever-changing because they're based off opinion and feelings, not truth. But why do I bring this up? Because listen, Christians, the church needs to hear this. We have a therefore. We have a therefore to racism. All men, all men are made in the image of God. That's why it should break our heart when we see an ugly murder. It's an image bearer of God that got killed. All men are made in the image of God. That's an ultimate reality. That's an unchanging true truth. All men come from Adam. Meaning there's really only one race. The human race. There's different cultures, there's different ethnicities, and we should celebrate them. But we're all brothers and sisters. Therefore, all men are valuable. Therefore, racism is wrong. Therefore, murder is wrong. Therefore, they are both horrible evils. And they should break our hearts. Christianity has a therefore. Secular society doesn't. Here's a very important side note. I truly believe, and I've said this well before anything has happened in racial tensions. Postmodern philosophy and postmodernism in our society has left a void because it doesn't have a therefore. You can't live that way. You can't make morality that way left a void. Again, I've said this months ago uh, before the current events. It's left a void. It's left a vacuum. And there's two ideologies that are trying to fill that void right now. Both these ideologies are postmodern, meaning they reject ultimate truth. They reject overarching truth. Both of these ideologies are secular. Thoroughly secular, meaning they reject God. And both these ideologies are Marxist. Meaning they're bent on destruction. The names of these ideologies are intersectionality and critical race theory. And for many of you, that's the first time you've heard maybe critical race theory. I've preached on intersectionality a couple times Sunday morning and to the women's ministry. Listen, both these ideologies are foundational ideologies to the movement. Black Lives Matter. Please hear me. The concept, the phrase, is very biblical. Black lives do matter. And listen, it's appropriate to say that right now. But the organization and the movement is anti-Christian. If you don't believe me, just go read their website. Read their beliefs, what they believe. It's anti-Christian. And we're getting to the place where we can't separate the phrase from the movement. And it's my calling as a pastor to point this out. Titus 1.9 says this, He, that's the pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
Intersectionality and critical race theory contradict sound doctrine. And they're not the answer to racism. In fact, these ideologies will make racism much, much, much worse as we move on. These ideologies want to rip us apart. That's why we Christians need to point people to Scripture not adopt the secular point of view on these things. We need to point people to the truth. And here's the amazing thing. We have the answer. We have the solution to racism, to tribalism, to hatred, to fighting, to murder, and the answer is the gospel. So I want to show you that Paul believed the same exact thing. By just doing a real quick overview Ephesians 1 through 3. Just look at Ephesians 1, verse 1 with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 is the introduction to Ephesians, a typical Pauline introduction that we see in most of his letters that he writes to a church. Verse 3 through 14 is this amazing doxology that we spent so much time in. It's just praise the God. He is like he couldn't help himself but but start this letter praising God. It's one sentence in the Greek, 202 words long. It's praising God for his salvation in eternity past and present and eternity future. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Doxology. It's poetry almost. Chapters 1, 15 through 23, you see Paul's prayer for the church. He actually writes out a prayer that he prays for the church in Ephesus could be a prayer that he would pray for us as a church he was alive and writing us a letter praying that the church would have knowledge that the church would know the truth ultimate realities they would they would know these these true truths ones he's about to talk about listen all of chapter one is really an introduction paul doesn't get to the heart of the letter of Ephesus, this amazing letter that is the favorite letter of many, many pastors, many theologians. The heart of the letter is found in chapters 2, verse 1, through chapters 3, verse 13. In chapters 2, 1 through 10, we have the gospel, what we just read. In chapters 2, 11 through 22, it's all about Jews and Gentiles being one body. In chapter 3, 1 through 13, it's about the mystery of the Gentiles becoming fellow heirs with the Jews. It would have been unthinkable. And then, verses 14 through 21 is another prayer that Paul writes out. But look again at chapter 2, 1 through 3, 13. This is the heart of the letter, this amazing letter. The heart of Ephesians. It's all about two groups. Jews and Greeks who historically hated each other, now one. Listen, this is not a command to be one. It's truth. They are one. One body, one temple, one family. Those that are saved, those that have put their faith in Christ are one with each other. But what's the foundation to this unity? this oneness. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Listen, most Christians love Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I think we as a church probably have it memorized by now how many times I've gone over this passage in our church. I know I do. There was a point I had it mostly memorized in Greek. Like, I loved this passage. And for many, this is one of the most beloved passages in Scripture, yet very few know why Paul wrote it. He wrote it to lay down the foundation to racial unity. Listen, the gospel is the solution. It's the solution. We're going to spend more time talking about this next week, looking deeply into the gospel. I want to end this sermon today by saying, please, as a church, be careful with your words right now. I feel like I've been having to say this every week and I don't have any examples. I'm not on social media, so I haven't seen anything. I just know Satan would love to divide us. Please be careful with your words. There truly are a lot of people that are scared and hurting right now. This is not a time to start arguments. I would even say be very careful about your joking. is a time to point people to the hope we have in Christ. And I'd say this, if you see an opportunity on Facebook or talking with a friend to argue about something, how about instead just sharing the gospel with that person? Even if it doesn't even make sense in your conversation, just stop and say, I'm sharing the gospel with you. careful how we use our words right now. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I thank you for what your Son has done on that cross. Lord, we were enemies of you. We were hopeless in our sin and trespasses, Lord. We were spiritually dead, destined for hell, out of your love, you sent your son to live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, to take the punishment we owed so that we can be reconciled with you, and not just reconciled, be adopted into your family. To have a promise of an inheritance in eternity beyond our, our imagination, beyond our comprehension. Yet through all of that, you've also reconciled us to to each other. Through our reconciliation with you, Lord, we have something that transcends all of our differences. We have something that that actually can bring true unity. I pray we as a church, Lord, model that unity beautifully. Be with us, Lord. Help us to love those that are hurting, Lord. Help us to point people to the hope we have in 